Book the First, Part Four of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the First, Part Four. He descended the stone stairs to a lower story of the castle, in which was a crypt-like hall covered by vaulting of exceptional and massive ingenuity. Built ere the art was known, by pointed aisle and shafted stalk, the arcades of an allayed walk to emulate in stone. It happened that the central pillar, whereon the vaults rested, reputed to exhibit some of the most hideous grotesques in England upon its capital, was within a locked door. Somerset was tempted to ask a servant for permission to open it, till he heard that the inner room was temporarily used for plate, the key being kept by Mr. Stancy, at which he said no more. But afterwards the active housemaid redescended the stone steps. She entered the crypt with a bunch of keys in one hand, and in the other a candle, followed by the young lady whom Somerset had seen on the terrace. "'I shall be very glad to unlock anything you may want to see. So few people take any real interest in what is here that we do not leave it open.' Somerset expressed his thanks. Mr. Stancy, a little to his surprise, had a touch of rusticity in her manner, and that forced absence of reserve which seclusion from society lends to young women more frequently than not. She seemed glad to have something to do. The arrival of Somerset was plainly an event sufficient to set some little mark upon her day. Deception had been written on the faces of those frowning walls, and there implied the insignificance of Somerset, when he found them tenanted only by this little woman whose life was narrower than his own. "'We've not been here long,' continued Mr. Stancy, "'and that's why everything is in such a dilapidated and confused condition.' Somerset entered the dark store-closet, thinking less of the ancient pillar revealed by the light of the candle than what a singular remark the latter was to come from a member of the family which appeared to have been there five centuries. He held the candle above his head and walked round, and presently Mr. Stancy came back. There is another vault below, she said, with the severe face of a young woman who speaks only because it is absolutely necessary. Perhaps you are not aware of it? It was the dungeon. If you wish to go down there too, the servant will show you the way. It is not at all ornamental. Rough, unhewn arches and clumsy piers. Somerset thanked her, and would perhaps take advantage of her kind offer when he had examined the spot where he was, if it were not causing inconvenience. No. I'm sure Paula will be glad to know that anybody thinks it interesting to go down there, which is more than she does herself. Some obvious inquiries were suggested by this, but Somerset said, I have seen the pictures and have been much struck by them, partly, he added with some hesitation, because one or two of them reminded me of a schoolfellow. I think his name was John Ravensbury. Yes, she said almost eagerly, he was my cousin so that we are not quite strangers. But he is dead now. He was unfortunate. He was mostly spoken of as that unlucky boy. You know, I suppose, Mr. Somerset, why the paintings are in such a decaying state? It is owing to the peculiar treatment of the castle during the Mr. Wilkins's time. He was blind, so one can imagine he did not appreciate such things as there are here. The castle has been shut up, do you mean? Oh, yes, for many years. But it will not be so again. We are going to have the pictures cleaned, and the frames mended, and the old pieces of furniture put in their proper places. It will be very nice then. 
Did you see those in the east closet? I have only seen those in the gallery. I will show you the way to the others if you would like to see them. They ascended to the room designated the east closet. The paintings here, mostly of smaller size, were in a better condition, owing to the fact that they were hung on an inner wall, and had hence been kept free from damp. Somerset inquired the names and histories of one or two. I really don't quite know, Mr. Stancy replied after some thought. But Paula knows, I'm sure. I don't study them much. I don't see the use of it. She swung her sunshade so that it fell open, and turned it up till it fell shut. I've never been able to give much attention to ancestors, she added, with her eyes on the parasol. These are your ancestors? he asked, for her position and tone were matters which perplexed him. In spite of the family likeness and other details, he could scarcely believe this frank and communicative country maiden to be the modern representatives of the distances. Oh, yes, they certainly are, she said, laughing. People say I'm like them. I don't know if I am. Well, yes, I know I am. I can see that, of course, any day. But they have gone from my family, and perhaps it is just as well that they should have gone. They're useless, she added with serene conclusiveness. Ah, they have gone, have they? Yes, castle and furniture went together. It was a long time ago, long before I was born. It doesn't seem to me as if the place ever belonged to a relative of mine. Somerset corrected his smiling manner to one of solicitude. But you live here, Mr. Stancy? Yes, a great deal now, though sometimes I go home to sleep. This is home to you and not home? I live here with Paula, my friend. I've not been here long, neither has she. For the first six months after my father's death, she did not come here at all. They walked on, gazing at the walls, till the young man said, I fear I may be making some mistake, but I am sure you will pardon my inquisitiveness this once. Who is Paula? You don't know. Of course you don't. Local changes don't get talked of far away. She is the owner of this castle and estate. My father sold it when he was quite a young man, years before I was born, and not long after his father's death. It was purchased by a man called Wilkins, a rich man who became blind soon after he had bought it, and never lived here, so it was left uncared for. She went out upon the terrace, and without exactly knowing why, Somerset followed. Your friend has only come here quite recently. She is away from home today. It was very sad, murmured the young girl thoughtfully. No sooner had Mr. Power bought it of the representatives of Mr. Wilkins, almost immediately indeed, than he died from a chill caught after a warm bath. On account of that she did not take possession for several months, and even now she has only had a few rooms prepared as a temporary residence till she can think what to do. Poor thing, it is sad to be left alone. Somerset heedfully remarked that he thought he recognised that name, Power, as one he had seen lately, somewhere or other. Perhaps you have been hearing of her father. Do you know what he was? Somerset did not. She looked across the distant country, where undulations of dark green foliage formed a prospect extending for miles. As she watched, and Somerset's eyes, led by hers, watched also, a white streak of steam, thin as a cotton thread, could be discerned plying that green expanse. Her father made that, 
Mr. Stancy said, directing her finger towards the object. That what? That railway. He was Mr. John Parr, the great railway contractor, and it was through making the railway that he discovered this castle. The railway was diverted a little on its account. A clash between ancient and modern. Yes, but he took an interest in the locality long before he purchased the estate. And he built the people a chapel on a bit of freehold he bought for them. He was a great nonconformist, a staunch Baptist up to the day of his death. A much stauncher one, she said significantly, than his daughter is. Ah, I begin to spot her. You've heard about the baptism? I know something of it. Her conduct has given mortal offence to the scattered people of the denomination that her father was at such pains to unite into a body. Somerset could guess the remainder, and, in thinking over the circumstances, did not state what he had seen. He added, as if disappointed at his want of curiosity, she would not submit to the right when it came to the point. The water looked so cold and dark and fearful, she said, that she could not do it to save her life. Surely should have known her mind before she'd gone so far. Somerset's words had a condemnatory form, but perhaps his actual feeling was that if Miss Parr had known her own mind, she would have not interested him half so much. Paula's own mind had nothing to do with it, said Mr. Stancy, warming up to staunch partisanship in a moment. It was all undertaken by her from a mistaken sense of duty. It was her father's dying wish that she should make public profession of her, what do you call it, of the denomination she belonged to, as soon as she felt herself fit to do it. So when he was dead, she tried and tried, and didn't get any more fit. And at last she screwed herself up to the pitch, and thought she must undergo the ceremony out of pure reverence for his memory. It was very short-sighted of her father to put her in such a position, because she is now very sad, and she feels she can never try again after such a sermon as was delivered against her. Somerset presumed that Miss Parr need not have heard this Knox or Bossuet of hers if she had chosen to go away. She did not hear it in the face of the congregation, but from the vestry. She told me some of it when she reached home. Would you believe it, the man who preached so bitterly is a tenant of hers? I said, surely you will turn him out of his house. But she answered in her calm, deep, nice way that she supposed he had a perfect right to preach against her, that she could not in justice molest him at all. I wouldn't let him stay if the house were mine, but she has often before allowed him to scold her from the pulpit, in a smaller way. Once it was about an expensive dress she had worn, not mentioning her by name, you know, but all the people are quite aware that it is meant for her, because only one person of her wealth or position belongs to the Baptist body in this county. Somerset was looking at the homely, affectionate face of the little speaker. You are a good friend, I am sure, he remarked. She looked into the distant air with tacit admission of the impeachment. So would you be if you knew her, she said, and a blush slowly rose to her cheek, as if this person spoken of had been a lover rather than a friend. But you are not Baptist any more than I, continued Somerset. Oh, no, and I never knew one till I knew Paula. I think they are very nice, though I sometimes wish Paula was not one, but the religion of reasonable persons. They walked on and came opposite to where the telegraph emerged from the trees, leapt over the parapet, and up through the loophole into the interior. "'That looks strange in such a building,' said her companion. "'Miss Power had it put up to know the latest news from town. It costs six pounds a mile. 
She can work it herself beautifully, and so can I, but not so well. It was a great delight to learn. Miss Power was so interested at first that she was sending messages from morning till night. And did you hear the new clock? Is it a new one? Yes, I heard it. The old one was quite worn out, so Paula had put it in the cellar and had this new one made, though it still strikes on the old bell. It tells the seconds, but the old one, which my very great-grandfather erected in the 18th century, only told the hours. Paula says that time, being so much more valuable now, must of course be cut up into smaller pieces. She does not appear to be much impressed by the spirit of this ancient pile. Mr. Stancy shook her head too slightly to express absolute negation. "'You wish to come through this door?' she asked. "'There is a singular chimney-piece in the kitchen, which is considered a unique example of its kind, though I myself don't know enough about it to have an opinion on the subject.' When they looked at the corbelled chimney-piece, they returned to the hall, where his eye was caught anew by a large map that he had conned for some time when alone, without being able to divine the locality it represented. It was called General Plan of the Town, and showed streets and open spaces corresponding with nothing he had seen in the county. "'Is that town here?' he asked. "'It is not anywhere but in Paula's brain. She has laid it out from her own design. The site is supposed to be near our railway station, just across there, where the land belongs to her. She is going to grant cheap building leases and develop the manufacture of pottery.' "'Pottery? How very practical she must be!' Oh, no, no, replied Mr. Stancy, in tones showing how supremely ignorant he must be of Miss Power's nature if he characterised her in those terms. It is Greek pottery, she means. Hellenic pottery, she tells me to call it, only I forget. There is beautiful clay at the place, her father told her. He found it in making the railway tunnel. She has visited the British Museum, Continental Museums, and Greece and Spain, and hopes to imitate the old fictile work in time, especially the Greek of the best period. Four hundred years after Christ, or before Christ, I forget which it was, Paula said. Oh, no, she's not practical in the sense you mean at all. A mixed young lady, rather. Mr. Stancy appeared unable to settle whether this new definition of her dear friend should be accepted as kindly, or disallowed as decidedly sarcastic. You would like her if you knew her, she insisted, in half-tones of pique, after which she walked on a few steps. I think very highly of her, said Somerset. And I. And yet at one time I could never have believed that I should have been her friend. One is prejudiced at first against people who are reported to have such differences in feeling, associations and habit as she seemed to have from mine. But it has not stood in the least in the way of our liking each other. I believe the difference makes us the more united. It says a great deal for the liberality of both, answered Somerset warmly. Heaven send us more of the same sort of people. They are not too numerous at present. As this remark called for no reply from Mr. Stancy, she took advantage of an opportunity to leave him alone, first repeating her permission to him to wander where he would. He walked about for some time, sketchbook in hand, but was conscious that his interest did not lie much in the architecture. In passing along the corridor of an upper floor, he observed an open door, through which was visible a room containing one of the finest Renaissance cabinets he had ever seen. It was impossible, on close examination, to do justice to it in a hasty sketch. It would be necessary to measure every line if he would bring away anything of utility to him as a designer. Deciding to reserve this gem for another opportunity, he cast his eyes round the room, 
and blushed a little. Without knowing it, he had intruded into the absent Mr. Pawler's own particular set of chambers, including a boudoir and sleeping apartment. On the tables of the sitting-room were most of the popular papers and periodicals that he knew, not only English, but from Paris, Italy and America. Satirical prints, though they did not unduly preponderate, were not wanting. Besides those, there were books from a London circulating library, paper-covered light literature in French and choice Italian, and the latest monthly reviews, while between the two windows stood the telegraph apparatus whose wire had been the means of bringing him hither. These things, ensconced amidst so much of the old and hoary, were as if a stray hour from the nineteenth century had wandered like a butterfly into the thirteenth and lost itself there. The door between this antechamber and the sleeping-room stood open. Without venturing to cross the threshold, for he felt that he would be abusing hospitality to go so far, Somerset looked in for a moment. It was a pretty place, and seemed to have been hastily fitted up. In a corner, overhung by a blue and white canopy of silk, was a little cot, hardly large enough to impress the character of bedroom upon the old place. On a counterpane lay a parasol and a silk neckerchief. On the other side of the room was a tall mirror of startling newness, draped like the bedstead in blue and white. Thrown at random upon the floor was a pair of satin slippers that would have fitted Cinderella. A dressing gown lay across a settee, and opposite, upon a small easy chair in the same blue and white livery, were a Bible, the Baptist magazine, Wardlaw on infant baptism, Walford's County Families, and the Court Journal. On and over the mantelpiece were knick-knacks of various descriptions, and photographic portraits of the artistic, scientific, and literary celebrities of the day. A dressing-room lay beyond, but becoming conscious that his study of ancient architecture would hardly bear stretching further in that direction, Mr. Somerset retreated to the outside, obliviously passing by the gem of Renaissance that had led him in. The effect's blue, he was thinking. Then she is fair. On looking up, some time later, at the new clock that told the seconds, he found that the hours at his disposal for work had flown without his having transferred a single feature of the building or furniture to his sketchbook. Before leaving, he sent in for permission to come again, and then walked across the fields to the inn at Sleeping Green, reflecting less upon Mr. Stancy, so little force of presence had she possessed, than upon the modern flower in a medieval flower-pot whom Mr. Stancy's information had brought before him and upon the incongruities that were daily shaping themselves in the world under the great modern fluctuations of classes and creeds. Somerset was still full of the subject when he arrived at the end of his walk, and he fancied that some loungers at the bar of the inn were discussing the heroine of the chapel scene just at the moment of his entry. On this account, when the landlord came to clear away the dinner, Somerset was led to inquire of him, by way of opening a conversation, if there were many Baptists in the neighbourhood. The landlord, who was a serious man on the surface, though he occasionally smiled beneath, replied that there were a great many, far more than the average in country parishes. Even here in my house, now, he added, when folks get a drop of drink at home, and their feelings rise to his own, some man will strike up a hymn by preference. But I find no fault with that, although it is hardly human nature but it is so calculating in your cups, a fellow may as well sing to gain something as sing to waste. How do you account for there being so many? 
Well, you see, sir, some says one thing and some another. I think they does it to save the expense of a Christian burial for their children. Now, there's a poor family out in Long Lane. The husband used to smite for Jimmy Moore, the blacksmith, to merit his arm. They've had no less than eleven children, if they've not been lucky to the way, and buried five when they were three or four months old. Now, every one of them children was given to the sexton in a little box that any journeyman could nail together in a quarter of an hour, and he buried them at night for a shilling a head, or it would have cost a couple of pounds each if they'd been christened at church. Of course, there's the new lady at the castle. She's a chapel member, and that may make a little difference. But she's not been here long enough to show whether twill be worth while to join him for the profit, or whether twill not. No doubt if it turns out that she's of a sort to relieve folks in trouble, more will join us yet than belong to it already. Any port in a storm, of course, as the saying is. As for yourself, you are a churchman at present, I presume? Yes, not but I was a Methodist once, I for a length of time. "'Twas only to my taking a house next door to a chapel. "'So that what with hearing the organ biz like a bee through the wall, "'and what with finding it saved umbrellas on wet Sundays, "'I went over that faith for two years. Oh, "'I believe I dropped money by it. "'I wouldn't be a man to say so if I hadn't. "'Homsoever, when I moved into this house, "'I turned back again to me old religion. "'Faith, I don't see much difference. "'Be you one or be you t'other, you've got to get your living.' The distances, of course, have not much influence here now for that or any other thing. Oh, no, no, not any at all. They be very low upon the ground, and always will be now, I suppose. It was thought it worthy of being recorded in history. You've read it, sir, no doubt. Not a word. Oh, then you shall. I've got the history somewhere. Twas gay manners that did it. The only bit of luck they have had of later years is Miss Powers taking to little Miss Distancy, and making her her company keeper. I hope twill continue. That the two daughters of these Antipodean families should be such intimate friends was a situation which pleased to Somerset as much as it did the landlord. It was an engaging instance of that human progress on which he had expended many charming dreams in the years when poetry, theology, and the reorganisation of society had seen matters of more importance to him than a profession which should help him to a big house and income, a fair diopia, and a lovely progeny. When he was alone, he poured out a glass of wine, and silently drank the healths of the two generous-minded young women, who, in this lonely district, had found sweet communion and necessity of life, and by pure and instinctive good sense had broken down a barrier which men thrice their age and repute would probably have felt it imperative to maintain. But perhaps this was premature. The omnipotent Miss Powers' character, practical or ideal, politic or impulsive, he as yet knew nothing of, and, giving over reasoning from insufficient data, he lapsed into mere conjecture. End of Book the First, Part Four